Now, the reason I want to talk to you about postmodern thought is that I've often had the impression that Christians do not know where we are today in the 21st century. They know there's been a serious moral collapse and that a lot of people today are not with us on questions of right and wrong, but Christians still think this is the 20th century, the century in which they grew up, only just a little further down the line, but it's not. A little further down the line in some illnesses is a new illness. Christians are making mistakes about the character of the world we live in, and you doctors will understand very well what that can mean. Picture a young physician diagnosing a patient. I wish I knew a little medicine, but as I don't, I track down an actual case on the Internet. A 75-year-old woman is unwell. This is her second visit to the clinic in three days, and she's very weak. The doctor has checked the record of her earlier symptoms, nausea, aching muscles, headaches, tiredness, lack of appetite for a period of five days. He makes the diagnosis of a viral illness and recommends that she go home and rest. And he's right about the virus. But this woman is going to die because of what he has just done. She collapses at home. On arrival at the hospital, blood samples are taken. Also, a chest x-ray is done, which shows white out of the lung. She receives intravenous antibiotics, but it's too late. She has respiratory failure, which brings on myocardial infarction, and she dies. What's the problem? Nothing was done against the killer, the thing that had the actual power to bring on her death. The doctor was distracted by the virus. Let's say he was distracted by a thing he likes to treat, a thing he knows a lot about, a thing he can treat most easily, whatever. That's very risky to the patient we think we are protecting. The dangerous trouble goes undetected. And here's a further possibility. There can be cases where the remedy given for the diagnosed trouble, only part of the actual trouble, is exactly the kind of thing that exacerbates the deeper trouble and throws the patient into crisis, like dousing a flame with kerosene. Now, I know you doctors have a medical equivalent for that metaphor. Well, that misdiagnosis is happening today in ethics. We don't know what's going on, and by guessing at what is going on and not addressing what is really happening, we're doing little to challenge it. In fact, by the things we say in redress of the moral trouble, we are fueling it. To the extent that we have debate about rights and wrongs, there is a common occurrence today. We are fighting something that we consider to be wrong, and we want to resist it in a constructive way. We don't want to just shout, wrong, wrong, wrong. We want to show that we have a leg to stand on in making our objection. Throw up a roadblock to the opposing view. And the thing we say is chosen because it will presumably pose an obstacle for our debate partner. But we don't know our debate partner. We don't know who we're dealing with. We think the problem is modern thinking, and so we say something that blocks a modern thinker. We're talking modern talk. But we're facing a postmodern thinker whose arguments are set in motion by modern thinking. Modern thinking is gas for their fire water for their weeds, 
We should stay away from it, as we, but not modern people, can. Many of us have started to use the word postmodern in discussion, usually in a contemptuous and dismissive way, but we don't really have a good sense of what a postmodernist is. We use expressions like liberal postmodern values, but also modern liberals. This is confusing. Is the liberal modern or postmodern? Do we mean two different kinds of liberal? Let's get to know the postmodernist. Let's get to know the pneumonia. It deserves our attention because it's a very hard condition to fight. But I should maybe be careful not to prejudice us against postmodernism. Some Christians say it is not pneumonia. Some Christians are suggesting that postmodernism is our friend and that Christians should accept proposals quote, for a postmodernization of the faith. Articles published in First Things, for instance, have called for making common cause with postmodern thought. So we need to sort out what postmodernism is to know whether it is a friend or a foe. Beyond not knowing what postmodernism is, Christians have a foggy notion of history. We are aware that there has been a serious collapse of morality in the West. The patient is ailing. But what has happened? The picture that many Christians carry in their heads is something like this. There are two phases of ethics, traditional and modern. In the modern era, the Judeo-Christian tradition was attacked by the Enlightenment, which made objective ethics subjective and introduced moral relativism. But that is just not true. The Enlightenment believes in universal reason. And so if there are any modern relativists, it is possible to argue with them. Relativist. There are no absolutes. All truth is relative. Us. Are you sure? Them. Absolutely. Us. So it is absolutely true that there are no absolutes, but all truth is relative. Any modern relativist will give that to you because they believe in calm, clear reason. But modernists are not relativists. When we are arguing with a relativist, we are not arguing with modern thought. Christians often say that the source of the problem with the way people think today is the Enlightenment. Well, it's time we learned that we are not alone in rejecting the Enlightenment. We need to be aware of the existing of the existence and the thinking of this third player in the history of ethics, postmodernism. So let's correct our errors, starting with a better picture of history. If you tell the story of ethics more or less accurately, this is what it looks like. And I've drawn it here to scale, time-wise. With regard to certain major tenets of ethics, you have an ancient tradition that lasts from ancient times, from the earliest times, when would that be? Well, it would stretch from the beginning when God spoke to Adam and said, do this and don't do that. So it starts earlier than I've shown here. But never mind, I've just picked the rough date of the Ten Commandments as the beginning, a known date relative uh, to our time, to the reign of the Pharaoh in the time of Moses, Ramses II, which is roughly 1300 B.C. And I've given no date as the end because that tradition has not ended it continues to the present. But let's mark its period of supremacy as lasting until the first major attempt to supplant 
or replace it, let's say 1740, in the time of David Hume. That's 3,000 years, after which it begins to fade as people are plucked off and absorbed by the new rival, modern ethics. The second current in the history of ethics is a modern tradition that establishes ethics on a new basis, running from around 1740, say, to, and again, when does it end? In fact, it hasn't ended, because you still have plenty of people whose ethics is modern. But let's mark it at least as lasting until the first major attempt to supplant it, roughly, say, 1980. That's 240 years. Versus 3,000 years. Now, I've picked 1980 for the sake of this diagram as the start of this new kind of ethics, postmodern ethics. Why 1980? Uh, could be 1970, 1960. There's no clear start to these things. The roots of postmodern thought go back a long way, though. And a great many things took place in the 19th and the 20th centuries, especially to bring it to life. But just as with the earlier modern outlook, when at first you had a handful of radical thinkers like Hume and Descartes and Hobbes, who are way out in front of everyone else, by the 18th century, the intelligentsia had caught up, and by the 19th century, modern people are everywhere. The streets are full of them. Well, same thing with postmodern thought. First, you have a handful of radical thinkers, Herder and Nietzsche in the 19th century, Sartre in the 20th, who are way out in front of everyone else, in this kind of thinking, but by the 1980s it's easy to find postmodern people. They're teaching in every department of the humanities at every Western university. And perhaps I should include high schools. And what are they doing there? Well, gradually filling our streets with postmodernists. A new survey of Canadian high school students conducted last year reports that, quote, almost two-thirds said that what's right or wrong is a matter of personal opinion. When asked what they base their own moral values on, 43% said, how I feel at the time, and 7% said, a personal de decision. A Barna poll some years back showed that only 32% of born-again Christian adults and a mere 9% of born-again Christian teens think that ethics are not relative. This relativism, as I've said, is far more consistent with postmodernism than with modernism. And postmodernism is now being taught at Christian universities as a positive development. I recall hearing one Christian professor speak, I would almost say preach, on the positively salvific contribution of postmodern literature. You'll hear what Professor Tucker has to say about that topic later this week. Quite sure he doesn't agree with that. Postmodernism is too new yet to be called a tradition, but don't sell it short. It has all it takes to become a tradition. It won't go away, I promise you, because we've had the arguments of this ethics before, way back during the reign of traditional ethics in ancient Greece. We had them from the sophists in the day of Socrates. But in the environment created by the traditional understanding of ethics, this kind of thinking could not take root and never became an ethical tradition. But it can now. Now, when the predominant ethics is not traditional, but modern, it has taken root, and it will last, and you'll see why. So what's the true story? Not two phases of ethics, traditional and modern, but three. And not one opponent of the Enlightenment, us, but two. Before modern thought, 
and after it. And if the Enlightenment, modern thought, is our enemy, we need to learn that the enemy of our enemy is not necessarily our friend. Why? Well, why is that? Well, what would you think about a friend who placed himself beyond reason? Imagine an actual war in which you had to pick a man to join you on a sortie into enemy territory. You have a choice between two local partisans from different bands, both sworn enemies of your enemy. But one of them does not believe in reason. Which do you pick and why? Anybody have an answer already? Well, a person who claims not to believe in reason is telling you that he's committed at a very deep level to something else that makes reason look suspicious to him. You don't know what it is. How do you know when that thing will kick in to your disadvantage? I find that worrisome. You can argue with any exponent of the Enlightenment, the age of reason. You can use logical arguments against them that they respect. But what can you use against a kind of thought that rejects rational arguments on the basis of what they argue for, on the basis of the worldview this person sees your arguments to be part of, which is not their worldview? To anyone who believes in reason, that way of dismissing arguments has always been recognized as a fallacy. It's called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy imputes a characteristic of the origin of something to what was derived from it. But the character of the origin is actually irrelevant. If you say that an argument is wrong because of the kind of thinking it comes from, then you're ignoring the argument itself. You're dismissing and not dealing with what has been said. You're turning your nose up at it on account of something that is beside the point. And here are two examples of this fallacy. Sure, the media claims that Senator Bedfellow was taking kickbacks, but we all know about the credibility of the media. Well, that's simply irrelevant. We need to investigate the claims to see whether the media are credible here. Or, this argument for the existence of God was cooked up by people who needed God to exist. The person who says this is saying, because of the needs of the people who produced this argument, or because of the ambitions or objectives or general ridiculousness of the beliefs of the culture that produced this argument, we can ignore the argument, just not respond to it, because we don't share those beliefs. I'm taking the position that the genetic fallacy is central to postmodernism. The philosopher John Searle has said, quote, In my intellectual childhood, the most common forms of the genetic fallacy were in Freudianism and Marxism. You doubt the truth of Freud's teachings? That only proves you are a victim of your own repressions. Nowadays, one does not hear the genetic fallacy much except from postmodernists, he says. I used to wonder why the fallacy was so common in postmodernism until I read an account that explains why the postmodernists really have no other form of argument available to them. The postmodernist is able to ignore entirely every argument he finds suspect on account of the outlook of the person making it. And this kind of thinker I do not consider an ally because his thinking could turn deadly at any moment. This thing, deeper than reason, that he's committed to will eventually come out 
And I think it will sometimes express itself in a very toxic way. But let's see whether my view is justified. We need to know about the meaning of postmodern, and we need to understand where we are. And I suggest that we do that by way of history, which is not usually what people do when they talk about postmodernism. They usually start very close to the present, and I don't find that as revealing as going back. If we go back to see where this came from, we will learn, I think, what we need to know. So in the 18th century, you have two new things going on at the same time. First, you have the conditions that prompted 18th century thinkers to advance the Enlightenment. So what is the Enlightenment? It's a critique of tradition in the name of reason intended to produce a superior, a mature, Enlightenment man. A critique of superstition, irrationality, a critical analysis of the most basic ideas by which we understand things, causation, for example, Hume says that a mature person really realizes that there's no such thing. So we will now throw away our crutches. The idea of new beginnings, which as you see follows from the first, things done right. Possible now that we have shaken off the dead weight of tradition. And so you have the quotation from Virgil on the great seal of the United States, first used in 1782, Novus Ordo Seclorum, referring to a new order of the ages. A new order of the ages. And thirdly, an expansion of the power that this rational, ideal human discovers he has in order to perfect life on earth. Technology, the harvesting of the earth, federalism, medicine, colonization. They're not bad things. But at the same time, and as this goes on, you have a few people who don't think much of this because they're responding to something else that is also happening in the modern world. And this is a story that, for some reason, we never get. At the same time as you have these Enlightenment developments, you have world travel, arduous as it then was, which was delivering reports to the scientific academies of Europe about what is actually out there in the world, the origin of the idea of noble savage, etc. Earlier Europeans belonged to the wider Latin world. Science was written in Latin. Latin was the language of politics. But there are other languages, including the languages of specific peoples in Europe. There were local customs of many kinds. It was the outlook of a people. And so as the idea of national cultures arose, the way of a people... Uh, the German people, the French, the English. There had been no Italy up to this point, just various city-states and principalities all over the Italian peninsula. But all these Italian-speaking lands united to become Italy in 1861, around language and the culture related to it. These individual traditions were thought to have a certain rightness as against the abstract principles of the Enlightenment centered in a few European philosophers or theorists. Now, as physicians, I think, you know better than I do that there's a tension between the individual case and the general rule. You know that you can't pick just one of this pair. 
Is there a false dichotomy at work here? Either the abstract universal principles of the Enlightenment or the particular outlooks of specific peoples. Is there, in fact, a third option? Well, in the history of ethics, we have three major phases, traditional, modern, and postmodern, each quite different from the others. So maybe, but that's a question to keep in the back of your mind. There was a reaction against the Enlightenment, and does that reaction have to involve what the counter-Enlightenment movement we're now going to look at says? The thinkers of the Enlightenment looked at the world, especially the world of their fellow man, with compassion. The condition of man is miserable. Why? It's miserable because man, says the Enlightenment, has been distracted from the desire to change it. The established religion is in fact quite an impediment here. It's quite indifferent to the world. If there is poverty, poverty will always be with us. If people are starving, man does not live by bread alone. If people suffer physically, Christ suffered before us, and suffering can bring us closer to our Lord. If despots rule cruelly, well, what do you expect of Caesar? But obey him anyway. Now, if you yourselves sitting here today are not willing to offer those answers to people caught in those circumstances, then you should be willing to think that the Enlightenment had a point. Man stands before the Enlightenment thinker in a pitiful state, in a state of affliction. In a way, man, mankind, is a patient of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment thinker is his doctor. And the doctor's approach to the problem of these afflictions is to work from the top down. Let's look at the condition we want to produce, health, and just design in our heads a way of life suited to producing it. And so they look at abstract things, at principles. And you have the Descartes and the Voltaires and the revolutionaries who can work out the solution to all man's troubles in their heads. We need to rethink their education, get rid of the king, a new system of government will help a great deal, and all the rest. But there's obviously another way to treat this patient. The problem that attracted the Enlightenment, man as a patient, remains the focus for this other way, and you see this concern for the condition of man as a feature of both of these streams of thought, the Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment. But the Counter-Enlightenment thinker who wants to treat man is not the same as the first, because instead of the top-down answer, working abstractly from the desired condition by way of ideas, you can have a kind of bottom-up answer in which new and strange ideas are not parachuted in. This was provided, for example, by a thinker by the name of Herder. The bottom-up answer does not trust the abstract solution, the idea of some contract drawn up by this or that group, the revolution that shakes everything up, fabricates some new regulating principle that does not come out of the life of the people. In a way, you can see the Enlightenment as a drug-favoring therapy. The new regulating principle, the new set of revolutionary ideas, is like a new drug, a new and unnatural thing done to the body to fix its natural problems. And there are people who reject this therapy as unnatural. You can't just rethink civilization, they say. This is not how people work. In presenting what I'm calling the counter-enlightenment critique of the Enlightenment, 
I'm going to rely heavily on a book by French thinker Alain Finkielkraut. I'm not sure that I agree with his conclusion, but his account of this neglected movement, this counter-enlightenment movement, is very good. And Finkielkraut puts it like this. According to them, tradition is primary. Take any character in history. Tradition arrived before he did. He belonged to his culture before he belonged to himself. From the very beginning, people have always entered into a game, a tradition. He's not mocking it by calling it a game. He's saying there are rules. People have always entered into a game whose rules they had nothing to do with establishing, but had to learn to respect all the same. Rules were fixed. You did not make them up along the way. So the rules of human life did not correspond to some deliberate agreement, a contract. They grew and ripened imperceptibly in the fertile soil of the nation. So if you want to fix this patient, look at the particularities of how the patient actually lives. Johann Gottfried Herder looks at the Enlightenment and believes that Voltaire and his pals are impressed with the power of their remedy and not thinking about the lives of their patients. They're very much like the doctors who say, just look at the effectiveness of this drug. Look at the results of these trials. This is a wonder drug. There's something wrong with this attitude, says Herder. The Enlightenment is oriented to power. The power of technology, the power of machines, thus the mechanical model of the universe by which you can build machines, and of course pharmaceuticals are down the line, the same kind of thinking, and likewise the power of reason. But this business of rethinking things was very suspicious. These Enlightenment thinkers are guilty of being arrogant, of attributing eternal dimensions to their own particular and time-bound way of thinking, creating instead of collecting, seeking universal solutions instead of relying on traditional local national practices. What we have is barbaric speculators, drunk on their own theories, who endowed their insignificant little selves with godlike powers and prescribed general remedies for a specific situation, rather than humbly recognize that the problem was beyond their reach, their reach, not beyond reach. Rather than do that, they considered themselves capable of solving it and went about doing their best to destroy their heritage, so the critique of tradition. And so the Enlightenment drives all those departures from Judeo-Christian thought, shaped by Greece, that had built the West. And what was one of the key mistakes? That the Enlightenment solution was universal. The pill, recommended in so many different forms, is a pill that can be taken by all human beings, provided they are of the species Homo sapiens. Of course, if people are not rational, then they will not respond to rational treatment, the Enlightenment pill will do no good, but that's the only counterindication, so to speak. For the Enlightenment, a true human being is a rational human being, and so there is a single pill, the one rational solution. But the critics of the Enlightenment say that there is no universal creature. Joseph de Mestre writes, There is no such thing as man in the world. In my lifetime, I've seen Frenchmen, Italians, Russians. I even know that one can be Persian. But as for man, I declare that I've never in my life met him. Now, on the one hand, to a degree, that doesn't sit well with us. But on the other hand, 
It really does fit things we know. Think for a moment about the liberal undertaking <coughs> to establish a universal understanding of the concept of healthcare. I'm not talking about universal healthcare as a system, but about having everyone in a given country embrace a single understanding of what health and therefore healthcare means. The idea that there is a Canadian or American understanding of health so that every person licensed by the medical body that serves the constituency of Americans, Canadians, should be compelled, compelled on threat of delicensing and end of profession, to accept that understanding. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Is that view, that everybody should accept the view of health, the Enlightenment or the Counter-Enlightenment? That's the Enlightenment. And it's opposed by counter-enlightenment thinking. Take that line of Demestre. There is no such thing as man in the world. In my lifetime, I've seen Frenchmen, Italians, Russians. Does that remind you of anything else that you've heard? Well, it reminds me of John Patrick in the myth of the multicultural patient. There is no multicultural patient. It also reminds me of Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher that we'll be talking about both tomorrow and Wednesday. Something is right about this criticism. So these counter-enlightenment thinkers rejected the solution of abstract universals. But they did not go back to the earlier tradition of Judeo-Christian thought. They're still modern. In rejecting the abstract universals of the Enlightenment, they wanted to reject all transcendental values, divine as well as human. All too abstract. So Denis Diderot would say that it mattered a great deal whether you could tell the difference between parsley and hemlock, but no difference whatever whether you could settle the existence of God or not. The Enlightenment attacked prejudice, views that don't stand up against the standards the Enlightenment wants to measure everything by. But Herder defended prejudice. You can't trust those standards. There is no absolute standpoint from which to measure these views. The ideas and values of a people come out of their own circumstance the way that this particular people thinks. Let's call this its culture. This culture is good in its time and place because it makes people happy. It lets them flourish in their own way. Herder wrote, quote, Let men speak well or ill of our nation, our literature, our language. They are ours. They are ourselves. And let that be enough. Herder is not saying that the patient is not unwell. He is saying that he himself knows whether he is ill, whereas the Enlightenment was telling people they were sick by foreign standards. Herder is saying that each society has its own measure of wellness, needs to heal according to its own standards. Now this constitutes a change, an historical change in the idea of culture. What is culture? Culture comes from cultivation. Culture is the institutions and products, books, plays, buildings, music, customs, that man sets up to help him grow into what he is. What are you doing when you're cultivating penicillin? You're trying to make it grow maximally. The culture is the stuff that makes it grow, that you have discovered that makes it grow. 
What are you doing when you're cultivating your garden? You're trying to make the tomatoes grow fully, to the full extent of their capacity. In each case, you're trying to bring out the natural capacity of this natural thing, which is to say, you are trying to assist them to be what they are. How do you define that capacity? Well, Christian said about the capacity of man that it was the capacity God put into man, just like the tomato, the fig, the dog, Adams, the capacity that God put into all these natural things in the creation. That is the idea of nature. Each thing God made has one. That's the idea of nature. Each thing God made has one. That for an appointed time this thing should, quote, flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. That's Psalm 92. That is God's plan. So culture is a concept that exists in that ancient tradition where it means support for each thing being fully what God established it to be at the very beginning. The proper end or telos of that thing. That's the thing that, the, that God established each of these things to be. And culture in the sense of philosophy, literature, music, painting, medicine, technology is simply the cultivation of man, helping him grow into what he is, an image of God. It is hardly an arbitrary set of practices. It is that specific set that we need. So this college is a piece of culture. And we could probably change it to make it a better piece of culture, as we try to do each year. But if we change it in certain other ways, it will cease to be a cultural instrument. So that is the Christian understanding of culture. Note that Herder said a culture, quote, lets a people flourish in their own way. A people, not individuals. But in his view, there was no Christian people because a people is not defined around transcendental abstractions. A people was defined around a history, an origin, a land, a home. I mean, for Herder, there were German Christians and French Christians, but they each had a different history. So now we have two different conceptions of culture. One is oriented to the product, the thing according to its potential, a potential divined at the beginning by the creator of all things, man made in the image of God. The other is oriented to, to what? On the one hand, you want to say it's not oriented to a product at all, it looks back to anterior causes. But in a way, that's not right. Culture is what works to produce the happy person as this people defines it for itself, being the kind of people they are. But the real difference is now apparent. There is no specific way that they have to be. This is important. They can change through time in accordance with changes in those particular and not universal conditions that make them what they are. The land, intermingling with other peoples, the re-understanding of their past, whatever. So what has been taken away to change the traditional concept of culture into this one? The idea of a fixed telos. A telos established from the very beginning. There is still a telos of the culture that's set for that culture as a whole, but it is a changing one, changing with time, in accord with changes in the people who deliver that idea of themselves 
in a fulfilled state. But in the traditional outlook, the telos was not delivered by the people, it was received by the people. It's true that Christians have a changing understanding of what it means to be a man, a Christian. Today we reject the sword-wielding crusader as a model, but Orthodox Christians at least do not think that the ideal has changed. It stands unchanged, and we struggle to see it through the smoke caused by the hell we create by sin. Now, I may be blinded by partiality, but it's easy for me to see Judaism today as largely exactly this kind of anti-enlightenment culture focused on a way of life and not abstract ideas. What does it mean to be a Jew? It means for, I think, the majority of Jews to follow the customs of the Jewish people as they have changed over time, to take up the cause of Israel, to live like a Jew, go to synagogue, hear the Torah, put out the Seder plate, etc. You don't need to wear a yarmulke, though you can. You don't even need to believe in God, because a lot of secular Jews still go to synagogue and celebrate the Passover. A Jewish friend once corrected me about the Jewish attitude to the Torah. He said it was you Christians who pour over the Old Testament, sifting out principles by which to guide your lives. Now, clearly Orthodox Jews do that. But his point was that the majority of Jews do not. But having said that, I think that Christianity today may be exactly the same kind of thing. A culture in this modern counter-enlightenment sense. Most Christians are like most Jews. They talk a kind of Christian talk, produce Christian stuff, stuff that comes out of a changing history, geared to produce happy Christians by some current modern understanding of Christianity. But that's not a culture in the traditional sense, which was a source of institutions and products designed to turn us into one kind of person, the kind of person God made us to become, a kind of person that we have to pour over Scripture to make clear to us. You know, we like to say, well, obviously we know what person we're talking about. We're talking about Christ. We have to pour over Scripture to figure out who Christ is. What is the model that he's showing us? And so the idea of culture changes historically from cultivation in the sense of bringing forth a kind of thing to my culture, the mentality of the people to whom I belong. Vastly different ideas. So we're looking at the ideas that distinguish this counter-enlightenment critique. The anti-enlightenment remedy for the human condition is that people should embrace and protect their culture. One illustration of this that comes to mind is the way that native peoples have been encouraged in the last 40 years to embrace and to protect the culture that they had been driven from or had let lapse. Solve your problems in your own way. And I think I'm justified in connecting this with the anti-enlightenment because it was white city dwellers who encouraged native peoples to do this. This was not an idea that came out of native history, which was encountering this problem of alienation from its own culture for the very first time. It came out of the phase of Western history that I'm describing to you, and the recovery of culture against the Enlightenment. So the idea is to embrace your culture, clearly a different idea of culture than the one delivered by the traditional outlook. For Orthodox Jews and Christians, 
culture aids nature, just as it does in your garden. Nature is fixed and unchanging. Why? Well, that's just the way it seems to be. That's just what we mean when we say things have a nature. They have an established way of being. Culture, however, does change. I mean traditional culture. It changes to help this thing that is in the process of becoming take the shape that it has as circumstances demand. So it might seem, well, how can this be that culture is established to bring out a fixed nature, but culture changes? How can... Well, you do different things in your garden all through the year. Different times of the year, you do different things. Cultivation changes. The creature remains the same. My main point here is very simple. The traditional understanding of culture is not in opposition to nature. But the anti-enlightenment understanding of culture is in opposition to nature. Because nature means fixity. Things with an established way of being. And a people does not have an established way of being. The thing that acts as the defining trait of a people in one century eventually disappears to be replaced by something else. And yet, it is still the Jewish people, still the Italian people. Culture understood as my culture, the mentality of the people to whom I belong, does not serve any unchanging thing. So this anti-enlightenment conception is against the radical modernity of the Enlightenment, against that idea of a new order of the ages, a revolutionary overthrow that changes things overnight. But its hatred of modernity, nevertheless, led these thinkers to conceive of a radically new view of man. In the words of Demestre, every question about the nature of man must be resolved by history. That is the new view of man. The traditional outlook of the Christian sees man as defined by God's creation. The Enlightenment thinker sees man as defined by his unchanging rational powers. The counter-Enlightenment thinker sees man as defined by his history, his historical culture. Alain Finkiel calls the view of these culturists, quote, a mutation in thought that has continued to influence us to the present day. By treating history as the fundamental mode of human existence, by showing how values changed over time, by replacing criticism of popular opinion with objective studies on how this opinion evolved. People see themselves as absolutely historical. They have one absolute, at least. Once upon a time, there was a period in which men were driven solely by their nature, but nature is just a starting place. Human potential is not defined by it. We can alter it, boost it, change it. But we improve on where we presently are by being true to the culture we embrace. The last picture, by the way, was captioned post-op transgender. What does nature give us? It gives us an opportunity to change it. But we're getting ahead of our story, back to the 19th century. What is the anti-enlightenment remedy for the human condition? 
that a particular people should embrace and protect its own culture without reference to absolutes such as some condition of nature, some given state of flourishing, fixed and unchangeable. The only thing that a people has to be is itself. So change, what we can do to our bodies, just as an instance, is not seen as a catastrophe. Enlightenment thinkers had chased history away in the name of banishing superstition or error. You can see that in the Western approach to native cultures, at least in many cases. Instead of emancipating souls, the enlightened colonizers succeeded in uprooting them. The ideas the colonizers brought on the basis of which people were to flourish were far too thin and lifeless to sustain them. The problem the Enlightenment was causing was not change, but a kind of change that was against the historical nature of individual peoples, which is the source of our capacity to flourish. What a healthy culture seeks to produce is a happy German people, or a happy Inuit people. It seeks to produce a fulfilled member of this unique nation by its own standards. So there's still a telos set for every culture as a whole at any given point of its development, but it changes with time. And you're looking at where this will go, actually. Because the one thing that any people knows is that it has a history, which means that it has changed. The telos changes with time because the people have changed. The happy Irishman at one date says yes to something that his ancestors said no to, and vice versa. Now, we're still in the past. We're looking at the development of ideas from the late 18th century on. But we've been talking at the level of quite general ideas. Nevertheless, you realize what we're talking about in concrete terms. The emergence of nationalism. The rejection of a universally human ideal in favor of a national ideal. How do you direct the human ideal, man as the Enlightenment sees him, by the universal power of reason, reason in capital letters. But the anti-Enlightenment figure says there is no reason per se. There may be logical form, pure deduction, mathematics, and so forth, but that's just a layer of reason. People cannot and do not live on the meager results produced by strict logical deduction. And isn't that true? You can't do science that way, can you? You can't do medicine that way. Higher thought has to work on the basis of axioms, basic truths established for the specific practice at hand, science, medicine, even mathematics works like that. Some people come together and develop a certain way of doing things, Euclidean mathematics, say. That agreement at which they have somehow arrived that they're going to accept these particular premises, certain specific axioms, is the basis of the practice that then gets established, the basis of that way of doing things, the practice of Euclidean mathematics. So at the basis of every way of life are certain axioms that define that group of people, at least for a time. Rationality belongs to specific ways of life. Reason is plural. If you start doing Euclidean math, nothing in the world forces you to do it for the rest of your life. You can do some other math if you really want to. You can change the axioms. 
And you can do it together with someone else if you can get them to accept your revised axioms. So if you have cause to do this, if you want to, you may. There's no law that drives you to the one system. That means that there is no law in the nature of things that lays any claim against the ways of your people. The Enlightenment believed in the laws of reason, capital R. Look at the wording of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Is this an Enlightenment document? Yes, because of this idea of self-evidence. What does self-evidence mean? It means that to any human being, any rational creature, who can see what plainly stands before him, certain unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are apparent. The counter-enlightenment thinker does not believe in this. Isn't it man, particular man, a person who has a certain history, a certain kind of preparation and training in seeing these unalienable rights? But the counter-enlightenment thinker is not necessarily against the words of the Declaration. He might use these words himself. These might be good lines to have in our Constitution, he says. But the emphasis is on the word our, our Constitution. We shouldn't make any mistake about that, he says. Actually, there are two mistakes that might be made. One is to think that the people capable of seeing unalienable rights, are mankind, man, by his natural powers. But another mistake is to think that the capacity to see this marks the pinnacle of human progress. Why should it? This is our pinnacle. Our idea of a fulfilled man is a man who recognizes these rights. And that's all we care about. America, he says, is our project. So what you might ask, does this recognition of a right to life rest on? And what's the answer? What's the answer that the counter-enlightenment figure gives to that question? It rests on us. It rests on our will, our collective decision as a people to honor that thing. If that idea has become a defining idea for us of who we are, we are the people who recognize the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You might come back at them and say, why? Why have you agreed? The Enlightenment thinker is going to ask that question, right? What does the Enlightenment thinker think the answer is going to be? It's going to be the universal reason of man that shows him what is true. Well, what is the answer that you get from the counter-Enlightenment thinker going to be? The answer is not going to be that there is something in the order of things that makes us acknowledge it. There is no law of the nature of things, no final law of right and wrong that drives us to this recognition. The counter-enlightenment thinker will never see things that way. Because whenever a person sees a thing and responds to it in a certain way, rejecting it, say, he knows that he does so because of a capacity that he possesses to see it as bad, and what explains that capacity in his eyes? History. He knows he has acquired that capacity, that his people did not have it from the start. He does not believe there is any universal reason that drives him to recognize it. 
and that means that this capacity has been acquired on the basis of various things that have happened outside of anyone's control, contingent events, history. It's the history of a people that makes it reject slavery or abortion, not universal ideas. If you are against slavery and abortion and want to talk about universality, that's too bad because, unfortunately, what has been universally recognized about abortion and slavery in practically every human culture is the acceptability of abortion and slavery. Practically every culture aborts and enslaves. Every act of recognition, the right to life, liberty, etc., that we set up as self-evident to us, as defining of who we are, is one that the counter-enlightenment thinker says became possible for us by our history. And if reasons played a role in that history, then they will be the kind of reasons that have power over us. Now, in the 19th century, when people were criticizing the Enlightenment in this way, the alternative they were arguing for was the nation. Why did Germany invade France in 1870 in a war called the Franco-Prussian War? Because there was a part of France that was German-speaking. There are no laws of man. The German people, the folk, have their own way of thinking and they require to be united. That's their way of thinking. What rules here is the spirit of a people, the Volksgeist, the spirit of a people defined around language and culture. But we, from our vantage point in 2009, know where this is going. As Finkielkraut says, nothing stops members of a state drunk on the Volksgeist. No moral obstacle stands in their way. Deprived of their innermost being, the unity of their people, they're ready to do anything. And as far as the enemies of the folk were concerned, they belonged to a different species entirely. No need to treat them with humanity. The concept of humanity, you can see, is effectively meaningless unless the people somehow decide to agree on it for their own reasons. And so in 1926, in a book called The Treason of the Intellectuals, a Frenchman named Julien Benda warned, 1926, warned about the new tendency of Western nations to think in this manner. He said that the most powerful ideologues of the earliest 20th century were teaching that a people should first form a conception of their rights and duties by studying their particular spirit, history, geographical position, the unique circumstances in which they find themselves, not by following the laws of the so-called eternal and universal conscience of man. And so you can see where the idea of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights comes in after the very distinctive horrors of the Second World War. Quote, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world, the dignity and worth of the human person, etc. It goes on to say, Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of every kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, how does this inherent dignity inhere? How does it inhere if it's inherent? What defines the human family? On what basis does that right to life depend? If you think in one way, and you tell me what kind of thinking this is, you will say that the inherent dignity of the human family inheres in its nature. In being a member of the species of Homo sapiens, the right to life is a given. It doesn't really depend on anything because it comes with being human. If you are human, then you have it. That is why the Declaration of Independence, for example, called it unalienable. Now, what kind of thinking is that, would you say? That's modern Enlightenment thinking. But you don't have to see it that way. If you think in the manner of the counter-Enlightenment, you will say that the inherent dignity of the human family might indeed inhere in being members of the species Homo sapiens, but only so long as we have decided that the whole human species counts for us. Only if we are well disposed to everyone with these particular chromosomes. And if you look at history, you see very clearly that that has not always been the case. Well, after World War II, we were ready to agree. That was a decision arrived at by us. But decisions are adjustable. Decisions are historical. You see the date on this one, the one here, one decision might be followed by another under different circumstances. The right to life is not a given. It does depend on something. It depends on our continued will to equate dignity with being biologically human. But there might come a time when we want to fine-tune that equation, which is a little broad. There might come a time when we want to say that the human family is not defined by chromosomes. I mean, Chromosomes will be the basis of the scientific definition of Homo sapiens, sure. But who has inherent dignity is really something that we have to decide. And if in 1948 we decided that it was going to be every member of Homo sapiens, look, this is in the hands of history. Things change. So for the counter-enlightenment, there are human rights, but there is nothing inalienable about these rights. They are accorded by the people. And as they are accorded, they can be withdrawn as the people decide. I'm calling this kind of freedom autonomy versus law. And so you see four key emphases of this counter-enlightenment thinking. Particulars, culture, and history, change, and autonomy. Okay, so most of what I'm going to do, I've done. Um, that's the story of what I've been calling the counter-enlightenment, and that's not an established term, because most people don't talk about this. Um, that's as good a term as any. I want to pick up this story after 1945, the year of the founding of the United Nations, and UNESCO, a sub-organization designed, as it says today on its homepage, to encourage international peace and universal respect. And given what I've just said, I think you have to admit that you don't know what kind of language that is. It could be enlightenment talk, but it might not be. 
Well, what happened after 1945? A lot of things. Here's one small event. There were countless more like it. In 1951, UNESCO invited the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss to give it some guidance. Right? The United Nations is trying to do a new thing. And so it needs a little help with this and asked him to give it some guidance. And the essay he wrote called Race and History, Lévi-Strauss said that there was no good definition of race and that we must stop ranking these accidental differences between human beings, which is all that race is. But then we must oppose every effort to rank accidental differences, to set accidental differences one higher than the other. The temptation we had to place human societies on a scale of values, assigning to ourselves the highest position, was an Enlightenment mistake, as morally harmful as ranking people by the color of their skin, he said. Levi-Strauss created a school of thought in which scholars in many fields took up the task of chasing ethnocentrism out of their disciplines. We used to see ourselves in the past. We would look at the past and we would see our origins. But historians now turned against this. So the whole discipline of history was beginning to move. Um, not entirely, but the group as a whole was changing. Philosopher-historian Michel Foucault said that this business of writing history, a history as our origins, looking for the antecedents of ourselves in history, said that this was just a consoling game of recognition. The task, he said, was to break into pieces everything which permitted that sense of continuity, because things have changed. We have to give up on the idea of progress and the stability of human nature. We have to start looking at the differences that those ideas paper over. If we're going to do that, what are we going to be looking at? The new history looks more and more, this happened from the 40s on, the new history looks more and more at sexuality, feelings, family life, ways of being, eating, dying, and what it discovers is irreducible differences. In history, a kaleidoscope of choices comes into view, against which the idea of one superior way of life is wishful thinking. So you see what's happening here. What was the United Nations? A response to the disaster of Volksgeist thinking in the shape of Nazism. The United Nations picks up the language of rights heard latest in the American Constitution. But what is the basis of those rights? Well, it's open to interpretation, isn't it? Does the global disaster of fascism cause a swing back to the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment is the thinking behind revolutions. What gives you cause to overthrow an established order? It's not tradition, obviously, but ideas. And so we had the English Civil War and the French Revolution. But we also had the Russian Revolution. And in the heart of the Cold War after 1945, the communist experiment is not making the Enlightenment look particularly rosy. So what is the United Nations, this defiant stance against Nazi principles, going to become? Well, we're not going back to the universal man. 
And we are not going back to the folk, to national or ethnic identities or racial identities. So why not go smaller still? And that's exactly what happened. Other French thinkers, for example, start talking about the culture of classes and groups. Quote from this book by Bourdieu and Passeron. The selection of meanings that objectively define a group's or class's culture is arbitrary insofar as the structure and functions of that culture cannot be deduced from any universal principle, whether physical, biological, or spiritual, not being linked by any sort of internal relation to the nature of things or human nature. So that's 1977. So we have arrived at this point actually, at postmodernism, before the name. And now you know how to spot it. We can take the four things that we teased apart in the thinking of counter-enlightenment figures like Herder and discover them alive and flourishing in the thought of postmodernists. Concrete particulars over abstract universals, culture, history over nature, change over givenness, and autonomy over law. That is the establishing of our own law, a law based on our own establishment. There can be law, but it's going to be that kind of law. So I think we've done enough for now in the identification of postmodernism. There's nothing much I have to add to what I've just said to make this kind of thinking clear. But I would like to show you very quickly, and without any comment, um, that postmodern thinkers think in this way. Here are a few postmodern illustrations of these four positions by people who are understood to be postmodernists. I've never heard Herder called a postmodernist, but I don't know why not. So when you're look, listening to these, uh, looking at them, I hope you'll now start thinking about how you're going to respond to a person who thinks in this way. Think about how you will sound to the postmodernist if you decide to remind him or her of truth, reason, progress, universal rights, how nature made us, and our cultural tradition. So, very quickly, let's go over these four major points. Concrete particulars over abstract universals. So, what are abstract universals? The abstract universals that postmodernism rejects, truth, wisdom, knowledge, right and wrong, family, gender, for a start. None of these terms deliver what they promise, according to postmodern thinking. Knowledge, how could knowledge be? Well, all that knowledge is, is what some group, for reasons to do with its history, has come to value in the kinds of business that knowledge is involved in, training, Education, publishing, etc. Truth, says Michel Foucault, truth is a thing of this world. It is produced only by virtue of multiple forms of constraint. Each society has its regime of truth, the types of discourse which it accepts and makes function as true. Or another quotation. One of the best ways of describing postmodernism would be as a form of skepticism. Skepticism about authority, received wisdom, cultural and political norms, etc. 
And that puts it into a long-running tradition in Western thought that stretches back to classical Greek philosophy. Skepticism is an essentially negative form of philosophy, which sets out to undermine other philosophical theories claiming to be in possession of ultimate truth or of criteria for determining what counts as ultimate truth, end quote. So postmodernists will talk about the end of meta-narratives. What do they mean by that? Well, just accounts of the world thought able to take the measure of every culture. It's an account that's higher than can look down on every culture and assess it. Jean-François Lyotard says, simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodern as incredulity toward metanarratives. One culture sees the world in the way it does. It delivers an account that has meaning within its locale and history that is, by definition, not a metanarrative. So there is no grand account, for example, of right and wrong. Quote, Jacques Derrida is against absolute notions of ethics that can legislate on choice for everybody and forever and ever. Instead, he must favor interminable moral decisions. He must favor the, quote, undecidability of the decision that makes any decision only temporary. So there are no universals. Things have no defined natures. Uh, Michel Foucault once again. It is a mistake to assume the existence of immobile forms that precede the eternal world of accident and succession. There is something altogether different behind things, not a timeless and essential secret, but the secret that they have no essence. Nothing in man, not even his body, is sufficiently stable to serve as the basis for self-recognition or for understanding other men. Michel Foucault. Uh, Second feature in that list of four, culture and history versus nature. The preeminence of culture means that we are not discovering things in the world, but encountering the world whose real nature, if real has any meaning, we don't actually know. We're not discovering things in the world, but encountering the world in the shape our culture gives to it. We're not discovering values, but fabricating them. We're not discovering them, we're making them. Michel Foucault. Science, history, and medicine are practices that systematically form the objects of which they speak. The domination of certain men over others leads to the differentiation of values. Class domination generates the idea of liberty. Again, the intellectual is not the bearer of universal values. Rather, it is a person occupying a specific position, but whose specificity in a society like ours is linked to the general functioning of an apparatus of truth. Third feature, impermanence and change. Just one quotation only. One might suppose that there are some givens. Take your sex or gender. You're either male or female. That's a given. But no. Gender is not something that one is. It is something one does. An act. A doing rather than a being. The parts that you're born with are just organs to which a meaning has to be attached, she's saying. 
that you have an identity because of these parts is merely the imposition of a culture that wants gender limited and nailed down. But in fact, you become a woman or a man by behavior, and there are other possibilities. So gender is constructed, not given, but fluid. Fourth feature, autonomy. Isn't there a law that tells us that murder is wrong, that people have rights? No. Rights are just things that we recognize because of our history, that we set up. The late Richard Rorty, who died last year, and is still one of the most articulate and persuasive defenders of the new outlook in America, explained this very clearly. Suppose, says Rorty, that we have never discovered that murder is wrong. It's not a discovery. It's not true in any deep way that murder is wrong. We just say it is. We believe it is. This means that when the secret police come, when the torturers violate the innocent, there is nothing to be said to them of the form, there is something within you which you are betraying. Though you embody the practices of a totalitarian society which will endure forever, there is something beyond those practices which condemns you. This is the kind of thing that we want to say. Rorty is saying, we can't say this kind of thing. And doesn't feel particularly comfortable. He says, this thought is hard to live with. As is Sartre's remark, and here Rorty quotes Jean-Paul Sartre, tomorrow after my death, certain people may decide to establish fascism, and the others may be cowardly enough to let them get away with it. At that moment, fascism will be the truth of man, and so much the worse for us. In reality, things will be much as man has decided they are. About this, Rorty says, this hard saying brings out what ties Dewey and Foucault and Nietzsche together. The sense that there is nothing deep down inside us except what we have put there ourselves. No criterion that we have not created in the course of creating a practice. Now, I hope what I've done, that I've done uh, what I intended, which is to show you how to identify postmodern ideas. But we can't stop here because that would be too depressing. <laughs> so just a few closing words. Though if I were to read 20 more pages, your depression, I think, would not likely lift that much. At the end of the year and at the end of the philosophy exam, I give the students two quotations one, a simple statement of relativism. Postmodernism does not seek to substitute one truth for another. It braces itself for life without truths. And the other a quotation from Richard Rorty. Literary types are frequently told that they do not love truth sufficiently. The question, do you believe that truth exists, is shorthand for something like, do you think that there is a natural terminus to inquiry, a way things really are, and that understanding that way will tell us what to do with ourselves? Those who, like myself, find themselves accused of postmodernist frivolity do not think that there is such a terminus. And what I ask the students is which they would rather tackle if they had to and why. I don't ask them to take these quotations on at the end of the exam. I'm not a sadist.
I'm just interested in which they would rather fight. And I think I've done this for three years, and I don't think I've had a single student or more than one or two willing to go after Rorty. I'm with them. How do you do it? Fight a battle that can be won on the basis of logic, like the claim that everything is relative. But it's much harder to dent postmodern thinking. This form of thought is conceived as, created to be, the antidote to all attacks of general principle. There is no one thing you can say to them that will penetrate their defenses because they have relocated to a position that measures everything you say by its origins. Remember the genetic fallacy. And then rejects everything that does not originate from their sources of thought, everything that comes from your culture. You notice that back in 1977, Bourdieu and Passeron hedged their bets and spoke of the selection of meanings that define a group's or class's culture. After 1945, with all the goodwill in the world, the UN could not split the world into nations or races. Couldn't, be, couldn't do that. The UN was supposed to be the antithesis of the Nazis, and it was not going to be enough to split the nation into classes because a class is not the smallest unit of a culture understood in a postmodern way. You have to go down to groups. Now think for a moment about this. What we're talking about is a way of thought built around group identity. For example, some old-fashioned people want everyone to obey their eternal laws, but you say to yourself, I'm not that kind of person. What is it that establishes a person's identity? Your identity is settled, for these people, by something you want to do that others are against. Think about that. It's no surprise that there is a strong sexual component to postmodern thought and postmodern identities because sexual behavior is one of the things that's causing a lot of trouble in our world. Sexually transmitted diseases, weakened families, no families, etc. Thus, opposition. Well, this becomes a source of identity. So one of the ruling ideas in postmodern thought turns out to be, quote, let me do what I want to do. In every phase of human history thus far, the developed philosophies that opposed Christianity were philosophies of principle, ordered around some conception of the world that imposed on people strict obligations that bridled their natural desires. The Kantian must respond to duty. The Humean must heed his conscience. The utilitarian must follow his calculation of the greatest good. The existentialist must be authentic by quite stringent standards of authenticity. But this gradually shrinking burden vanishes when the fundamental principle is committed to doing the thing I want to do, a bottom line that defines what I will hear as making sense and what I will hear as constitutive of some other identity that is not mine and thus some kind of irrelevant gibberish. Now, at this point we can feel a little bit hardened, actually. This should cheer us up to some extent. If this is where we are in history, that's a little bit cheering for two reasons. 
First, because it seems to me impossible that this description could truly describe how any human being actually thinks and lives. Surely a postmodernist by this description is a misdescription of any functioning human being. So it is a theory of refuge. So there's hope that we can show people that they are not what they think they are. They're not really against meta-narratives because their story of human history is one. They're not really willing to say that rape, the waterboarding of foreign detainees, the leveling of rainforests, and genocide are merely objectionable. But there's only a little comfort to be drawn from this because whenever you convince a postmodernist that what they want is something universal and absolute and set in stone, they will just say, yes, I do, that's my culture, which is based, as you say, on what I want. You might, for instance, convince them that they do not want some new postmodern science or postmodern medicine based on culture. They're happy to let scientists understand penicillin in their own way. But you have not scored any victory here. Insofar as postmodernists want actual science, they will accept it. They will say that they accept the results of the arbitrary historical practices of Western science. They're not going to deny prediction and control. But wherever actual science speaks against their identity, they will reject science. Wherever your conception of health tells them that they have to stop doing something central to their identity, they will reject that conception of health and embrace their own, the conception of health built around the idea, let me do what I want to do. I was surprised when I discovered a university textbook called Queering the Pitch, the New Gay and Lesbian Musicology. Uh, just reissued in 2006, second edition. I didn't think there could be such a thing as gay musicology. But if there are people who want to hear Schubert as proclaiming his repressed gayness in his music, what are we going to say? You don't really want to hear Schubert that way? They manifestly do. If people have built themselves a fortified castle around their desires, they're locked in. They are in the grip of their own will. And what do we think of the people who did that which was right in their own eyes? Judges 17, Deuteronomy 12. And would not hear, but hardened their necks. 2 Kings 17. We think there's a great danger that they will be lost. We ought to pray for them. We ought to pray for the lost. But there's one further bright hope, and it comes as some relief, I think. Never mind arguing. Just give up all this talk about truth, reason, progress, universal rights, how nature made us, and our shared culture, and get back to your own tradition. Your own culture, whose purpose is to make you the kind of person God intended. Our culture, when we say our culture, as Theodore Dalrymple did on the cover of that book, our culture, what's left of it, our culture is just a polite manner of speaking. Be a disciple. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. It's not terribly attractive to be a postmodernist. It's not always terribly attractive even to the postmodernist. 
It's a bit of a challenge to be postmodern and beautiful because the note the postmodernist has to sound so often is me, my, my own, us, and all its variants. And a life lived in that mode has nothing to stop it from being grotesque in its own eyes. I want to close with these words by... uh, Well, before I say that... um, Let your light so shine before men. Be an example. Be an alternative. Show them a different kind of person. Because the kind of person they sometimes see themselves to be is not very attractive. So the last words I'll give to Nora Vincent, a writer and self-proclaimed lesbian, talking accusingly to postmodern feminists. She says, accusingly, we and we alone are what matter now. We can do anything. We can have as much sex as we want, as much wanton sex as some men do, and we need not be concerned with the consequences. If the unthinkable happens, if, surprise, surprise, nature actually takes its course and we become pregnant, well, we'll just do what we do after we binge on too many French fries. We'll purge. After all, if you want to stay thin after eating everything in sight, then it's the finger down the throat. If you want to stay barren but have as much protected or unprotected sex as you want, then it's the doctor in your business. But not too much in your business. Only as much as you want him. What's more, when we're good and ready to have a child, we'll still be totally in control of our bodies. We'll smoke, we'll booze, we'll crack it up all night long if we take a mind to and it'll be nobody's business, because the Constitution protects us. We have a right to our privacy and our bodies, even though when it comes to that seventh, eighth, ninth month of pregnancy, we're pretty sure we're not alone in them anymore. But who cares? Those babies are ours, and we can do with them what we like. We can smoke three packs a day. We can drink motor oil, and if that baby comes out with a brain that doesn't quite work, or that doesn't work at all, if it has an imposed mortal dependency on a narcotic, if it comes out with expensive special needs, well, the government will pay for it. That's what the government is for, to safeguard my right to do what I like and pick up the tab when I've done it. I can do anything. Consequences be damned. Let freedom ring, because by God, I am woman, and this is America.